The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. I am excited for our time together. Uh, If you have your Bibles, grab them. Open with me to Amos 5 this morning. Um, Our time in Amos up to this point has been really sweet. And I, I, you know, here we we preach through books of the Bible, and I know that there were probably many of us who were unfamiliar with this book when we started. And if you were being honest with me, you were probably wondering how on earth we were going to spend multiple, multiple, multiple weeks in a book like Amos. Um, But I have to tell you, this has been on the short list of my favorites to just walk through together as a church. Um, This book has not been easy. It has been hard-hitting, but it has been sweet. Sweet because I believe that in the sting of all the conviction that we feel in this book, we've experienced and we've seen the grace of God being all the more. And so I have, I have loved our time in this, this book. I bring this up because um, we're going to talk about something this morning that is not new in Amos. We've seen it here and there uh, in, in Amos as we've seen the first five chapters. Um, but today, as we finish chapter five, something is going to be absolutely hammered home. And I've said this multiple times, but the, be, at the heart of the problem of the people in Amos was a heart problem. And we're going to get a better glimpse of what that was this morning in this text. Um, And before I read our text this morning, I want us to start way back at the beginning. And when I I say beginning, I mean beginning. Genesis 1 kind of beginning. Um, And I want you to just think about this with me for a moment as we get into our text this morning. Um, If you remember what happened in Genesis 1. God created all things, heaven and earth, out of nothing. We, we read that he created all things out of nothing for his glory, and it was, it was good. Um, we read he created the heavens and the stars and the planets and galaxies. We read he created mountains and trees and valleys and streams and everything. He created the fish and the birds and the... I'm not going to continue. You get it. And at the end of each one of those, he says, it, that was good. That's good. It is good. And then he creates man. And there's something important here, and I, I want to bring this out. In, uh, in Genesis 1, um, if you could go with me to Genesis 1. For some reason, this isn't working. There we go. Um, look at this. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What we read here is that God creates man in his own image. It's something we have called the Imago Dei. The Imago Dei. And after he creates man and woman in his image, he says it's not only good, but if you read Genesis 1, he says it is exceedingly good, abundantly good, very good. Church, it is good when we understand who our God is as creator and who we are in light of that. 
created in his image. When we understand our place as image bearers, it is abundantly, exceeding, awesomely good. But that doesn't last. The image bearing does, but the goodness and the flourishing in that image, there's something that happens in Genesis 3, and it just chain, it flips up the, ex, the exceedingly abundantly good. It flips it upside down. And if you remember... Um, in Genesis 3, we have the original temptation. And in the original temptation, in Genesis 3, in verse 1 of that, of that, ver- of that chapter, we read that God said that the, the serpent comes to the woman and says, did God actually say that you shouldn't eat? And then the woman responds, um, Yeah, God is letting us eat of everything except for that one. And God said, don't eat that one tree lest you die. But then the serpent in verse 4 says again, you're not surely going to die. You're not going to die. God just knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be opened and you're going to be like him knowing good and evil. So here's the lie. Here it is in the temptation. You have first, did God actually say that? Questioning his word. Then, did God actually mean that? He was lying to you, questioning his goodness. And then to seal the deal, God just knows that when you eat it, your eyes are going to be open and you're going to be like him. Like him. Now, don't misunderstand that. I'm not saying like him as image bearers. That's not the temptation. The temptation was not hey, you're going to be like him as his image bearer. No, 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 no. The temptation was you're going to be like God as God. Not to be like God as an image bearer like he created us to be, but to be like God as God in God's place. And so the temptation of Genesis 3, way back in the beginning, in the fall, was, to, was the temptation to question God's word, to question God's goodness, and then ultimately, church, to question God's place. For those who are created in his image, to no longer be content with being an image bearer, but to have this desire to be God. Church, that temptation, and the reason I bring this up, is at the heart of all forms of idolatry. That's at the heart of it. Idolatry, in other words, is a, um, it's a placement problem. It's placing anything else as central or ultimate, placing anything else in God's place. It is worshiping creation over creator. It is, maybe it's, it's something we make, a wooden or brass idol. Maybe it's something in nature. Maybe it's our possessions, our stuff, our money, our job, our achievements. Maybe it's people, um, your kids, relationships, food, drink. Maybe it's like the garden, where in the garden, maybe it's, it's ourselves and our own authority and our own autonomy. Whatever it is, here's the rea- reality. From the moment of Genesis 3, we as human beings have been in the business of creating idols. From that moment. John Calvin says this, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. 
This imagery of a factory just cranking them and churning them out, idol after idol. It's like we have a superpower as humans to make anything and everything is a potential idol. The good, the bad, the big, the small, it can be an idol because our nature is to just churn them out. Calvin says it's our, it's our nature, it's our sin nature to do this. And I believe he hits it on the head because just a few sentences later, just a few short sentences later, he makes this powerful connection. Excuse his, he's brilliant. He has this floofy language, so follow with me here, okay? Man's mind, full as it is of pride and boldness, dares to imagine a God according to its own capacity. As it sluggishly plods, indeed, is overwhelmed with the crassest ignorance. It conceives an unreality and empty appearance as God. Now, that's beautiful. It is sad. Um, it's beautifully written. And I want to sum it up. If, if rather than, whereas God creates us in his own image, remember the Imago Dei. Idolatry at its core is the great perversion of the Imago Dei. The great perversion. Rather than God creating us in his own image, we seek to create God or gods in ours. In our own image, in our own likeness. Church, that is idolatry. And, and idolatry leads to death. Um, there is no life in a God that you form. It leads to death just as true today as it was in Genesis 3. Idolatry leads always to death. And I have one objective this morning, and I'm going to give it away up front, and even before I read the text. One objective this morning. Um, here it is. You ready? Search your heart. And take any and every idol and viciously kill it. That's the objective. Um, don't wait. Don't pause. Don't reason yourself out of it. Don't take your time. This is a call this morning to a full-blown search and destroy mission. That's what we're here to do this morning. And my prayer all week, honestly, has been to that we would have the courage to do that and that we would not be distracted by the idols of our neighbors, that we would not try to justify ourselves because our idols are at least not as obvious and terrible as their idols, that we would not take our time, but that we would search and destroy through the power of the Spirit for the glory of God that we may be more like Jesus. So as we get to our text, that's where we're going. And, and I think when we understand, when we, when we take our Bibles, we need to understand that the pages of Scripture is full of humans' propensity to be idol-making factories. It doesn't matter where you open it. It's there from the garden to Babel, from the golden calf to Baal. Even after the people were called out and promised by God, God, we're gonna, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people. Even after that, they still wandered to other gods. And, and we see this clearly in our text this morning. So I want to look at this together. Our text, we're going to finish out chapter 5. 
and we're going to start in 25. It says, did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? God here is questioning them. He's questioning his people, and through this question, what he's doing is he's driving their attention back to these 40 years. He's driving their attention back to their history, and he's calling them to remember, remember, and and he's calling them to remember when they were delivered from slavery in Egypt, and then they have these 40 long years of wandering, and he's calling them to remember He's he's helping them go down memory lane, um, and he's pointing them to something. And and here's the thing. You don't need to turn with me here. Um, I could have taken us to uh, several places, but I think Ezekiel is probably the most clear place that we can go um, for this. But I want to turn to Ezekiel because he sums it up really, really well. Um, this 40 years, what, what God is causing or calling them to remember. Ezekiel chapter 20, says, but the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live and my Sabbaths, they greatly profaned. Then I said, I will pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land I had given them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the glorious of all lands, because they rejected my rules and did not walk in my statutes, profaned my Sabbaths, For their heart went after other idols. Nevertheless, my eye spared them, and I did not destroy them or make a full end of them in the wilderness. Church, the the wilderness that God is pointing them back to was a time of wandering, not only geographic wandering, but worship wandering. It was a dark time, and, and, and it was a, the time when they wandered away from the true worship of God, who had just delivered them, and it started with a golden calf, and it did not end with the golden calf. It just kept going and continuing, and God says, they rejected my rules. They did not walk in my statutes. They profaned my Sabbath, and their heart went after other idols, and God here is calling them to remember that calling them to remember that. And, I, and I, I want to bring up something really important. I don't want you to miss this. These 40 years, it's not that the people of, of Israel rejected Yahweh altogether. It's not that they said, you know what, forget it. We're no longer his people. Who's Moses? I don't care. We're done. It's not that they did that. It's, it's get this, as they wandered, And their hearts went to other places. What did they do? They still wanted to keep the trappings of God's people. They still wanted to keep the reputation of being Yahweh's people. They didn't outright reject him. But what did they do? They intermixed. They intermixed together. They they took a little bit from here and a little bit from there. And they formed their own way. They picked and they choosed. And they sprinkled a little bit of what other cultural God was around them into the mix 
They sprinkled it in, stirred it together, and created their own concoction. They intermixed. They took what they liked from God, his blessings and promises, keep those, and they put down what they didn't. And then they sprinkled in a little bit from the world's ways around them. Again, what they were doing was creating God or gods in their own image and likeness. And here in Amos, God is calling them to remember that time. And then he reminds them that not much has changed. Verse 26. You shall take up Sikketh. I'm just going to go with these pronunciations. Just flow with me. I'm not Assyrian. Um, you shall take up Sikketh, your king, and Kayun. Sounds like a PBS show. Kayun, your star god. Your images that you made for yourself. God through Amos is calling out these gods. We don't have a lot of time here to go into the deep into the weeds, but what he's doing is he's calling out these ancient Assyrian gods. And, and he's saying, people of Israel, you are forgetting who you are. You are going to take up the gods around you. You're forgetting the Imago Dei. You're forgetting the God whose image you have been created. And you're joining in with the people around you. You're joining in with them, creating gods from creation, creating gods in your image. In fact, he identifies these, these gods. And I love this line. I don't love it, but it's so clear. Your images that you made for yourselves. Idolatry is the great perversion of the Imago Dei. The great perversion of the Imago Dei. Whereas God created us in his own image, idolatry is the image we make for ourselves. We see this from our text today. Idolatry, this, this stuff right here is not safe. It's dangerous. Multiple times throughout Scripture, God reveals himself as the jealous God commanding us against idolatry. Multiple times. And just to be clear um, with this, God does not need your worship. He's not waiting for you to worship him so that he can be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's not why he commands this. And God is still God, whether you worship him or not. In fact, if you look at our text, if you think back to our text, what was happening in those 40 years when the people were wandering? Was God not God during those 40 years? No, he's reminding them, I was still God even when you were wandering. God doesn't need our worship, and yet he's, this, he's a jealous God who warns throughout Scripture against idolatry. Idolatry is not safe. It's not something we can play with. It's not something we can dabble in. It is deadly. God does not need your right worship in order to be whole. You need your right worship in order to be whole. And idolatry is deadly, and it leads to death. It leads to exile. And listen to the way it plays out in our text. Verse 27. And I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Exile. Exile. And if you remember in Amos, this was a relatively prosperous time. Things were going well. They were, they were prosperous. 
and, and here, this time of wealth and stability and security, this idolatry is leading them to a loss of all of that, a loss of security, a loss of provision, a loss of land, a loss of their home position and power being exiled to a land that is not theirs, not their home. In a way, God reminded them of the 40 years in the wilderness, and in a way, he's warning them of the wilderness that is coming. Idolatry is not safe. It's deadly. It's like a copperhead snake. We're in Texas. I could pick so many things that want to kill you in Texas. But it's like a copperhead snake. Don't try to tame it. Stop it. It wants to kill you. Do not tame it. It is not safe. It is deadly. I love the way that Tony um, Rinke expresses this. He says... Nothing is more dangerous than religious confidence in a fake God of our own imagining. Nothing is more dangerous than that. It was dangerous for the people of Amos in those days, and church, hear me, it's dangerous for us today. In fact, the more I've sat with this, the more I've thought through this and studied this, I believe that this is the most dangerous thing that we could possibly face. There's nothing more dangerous than this. Now, your land might not be in question. <laughs> Exile and like it was for the people of Amos, but our very souls are. This is dangerous. Nothing is more dangerous than religious confidence in a fake God of our own imagining. But church, we still imagine, don't we? We still imagine we are good at this. Our hearts, after all these years, are still just as much perpetual factories of idols, just ongoingly cranking out, churning out, idol after idol after idol of our own imagination. And idolatry is just as dangerous today as it has ever been. Ever been. And I want to I just, for a moment, if you're here, if you're listening to this, and you do not know or you do not follow Jesus, you're, you're here, you've not been saved by grace, you don't walk with Jesus. If you're here, the call this morning is that Jesus wants to come in and transform your heart and make you alive in him. Right. Alive in him. And he wants to make you thirsty and then give you the true drink. And none of your idols, none of the gods that you currently serve are like him. And I can say that in complete confidence. Complete confidence that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And with great joy, the call this morning is to come to him. To come to him. But I want to make sure there's something clear with this invitation. The call to come to Jesus is, is not a promise to get stuff. It's not a promise to, you know, the Bible doesn't, I don't care what you hear me saying, the Bible does not promise you like stuff like health and wealth and prosperity and security and all your wildest dreams and the best life that you could ever imagine. That's not the promise of Scripture. When you come to Jesus, the promise is not that Jesus is going to take away your dusty old aisles and give you new ones that are shiny. The call to come to Jesus is not come to Jesus and get Jesus' stuff. That is not the call that Scripture gives us, the gospel gives us. The call is to come to Jesus, and when you come to Jesus, you get Jesus, who is infinitely better than any and every idol that you can form in your own imagination. That is the call of the gospel. 
And if you're here, you don't know or follow Jesus, the call is to come. Don't wait. He's better than all the other things that you might have in your mind that you've been trying to elevate into that place. He's better. Come to him. Come to him now. Don't wait. But I want you to hear me. If you are here and you do follow Jesus, if you're here and, and you, by the grace of God, have been saved through faith in Christ, I got to tell you, your heart is prone to wonder, and you need to know that about you. Your, your, um, your idol factory is still in business. That man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. You, the idol in factory in your heart is not yet out of order, and it's still wanting to churn out and to create things. And for you, it might even be religious things that we want to churn out and, and create. Um, and daily, our calls to we have to go in, repent, and shut it down daily. This is our ongoing battle. The enemy would want nothing more than for the people of God to have given their hearts to lesser things. And if he can do this in a way that we don't even know about it or realize it, oh, it's all the better for him. It reminds me, um, again, you don't need to turn with me here because I'm going to reference it quickly, but it reminds me of another Old Testament minor prophet, one um, named um, Hosea. If you remember Hosea, it is a wild ride. Like, Hosea is... (laughs) chosen by God to be his mouthpiece, but more than that, to be a grand object lesson. If you remember Hosea, that just to proclaim the faithfulness of God and the unfaithfulness of the people. And, and Hosea, in, in the early chapters, is told to go marry a, a prostitute, told to go and, and, and marry a woman who gives herself to other men. Hosea marries her. They have children together. And uh, it's interesting because... They name, the names of their children are also interesting object lessons. Um, it's just a wild story. And yet, again, his wife is still unfaithful. She returns to her own old ways. And then God tells Hosea, hey, go back, buy her back. Buy back what is yours. Buy her back. Redeem her back out of her unfaithfulness. And then we read this in Hosea 3. Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. See, most prophets, they speak the word of God to the people. Here, Hosea, he's doing that, but he's speaking it with his words and his, his very life. And Hosea is a story that reminds us of two things. Number one, it reminds us that our God is faithful. It reminds us of redemption. The fact that we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. It reminds us of Christ, our Redeemer. That's number one. But number two, it also reminds us of our temptation toward idolatry. It reminds us of that impulse to give our affection to other gods. That our perpetual idol factories are still in business. I wish that they just closed up, that when we come to know Jesus, we no longer create. I wish that were true. And one day it will be. When we see Jesus face to face, when we see him that day, when we are with Christ, church, the battle is over. It will be over. 
It's done. It's out of business. The factory's demolished. But until that day, until that day, our battle is with our idolatrous heart. Until that day, it is a battle. Just because you know and follow Jesus does not mean that you are free of idols. It just means that you're in a battle, and hopefully you know about it now. That's what it means. And I want us to realize two things. There are two temptations here that we are going to face in this battle. I want to give them to you. Two temptations. One is we are tempted towards something I'm going to call deflection. Deflection. Um, what I mean when I say this is, is maybe you can relate to this, but it is easier to recognize the idols of other people than it is to recognize your own. So much easier. Um, they're so much more obvious in their life. And I'm not just talking about other cultures. I'm talking about your neighbor. Um, it's so much easier to see their materialism it's so much easier to see their gluttony and the problems they have with their priorities. It's so much easier. It's so much easier to see the weird way that they spend money. It is so much easier to see the weird relationships they have with other people. Maybe the weird relationships they have with their kids. They might not have a shrine to their kid where they worship at their altar, but they could and it's easy for you to see it. It's obvious for you to see it, their obsession. It's easy to look in from the outside and say, yep, that ain't right. Man, they're weird. It's easy to do that, right? Um, but it is much, 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 much harder to identify our own idols with that level of clarity. And why is that? Well, it's because we deflect. So often we deflect. We deflect by giving justifications of why yours isn't as bad as theirs. We deflect by giving really good reasons. And so often we see with such great clarity the eyes of uh, the idols of others that we call them out with great fervor and passion. And yet at the same time, our eyes are clouded to our own and we avoid our own idols with great indifference. And we justify and give reasons why our idols aren't as bad or as dangerous as theirs. And we deflect. You might have felt it in this room already. As I'm talking about this, you might have like six people that you're thinking about. Like, yeah, they probably should listen to this. <laughs> deflect. Deflect. And I think this is exactly what Jesus is getting at when, in, when he says in Matthew 7, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye? When you got a log coming out of yours? He asks this question and he says, how can you say to your brother, hey, take that little speck out of your eye. When you have a plank that you're rocking out of your eye, you hypocrite, first take that log out of your own eye and then you'll see clear enough to take the speck out of your brother's. It's the same thing. We deflect. We're tempted to deflect. You see the idols of others more than you see your own. So as you're confronted with a scripture that leads you to see and call out idolatry, our temptation will be to deflect. And so to, to get around this, to deal with this, we need to fight that temptation and start with our own hearts. Start with our own hearts. That's temptation number one. But there's one more that is so, so dangerous. 
we are tempted towards syncretism. Syncretism. Um, what I mean by this is, is, do you remember when I said the people of Israel, what were they doing? It wasn't that they forgot about God altogether. It wasn't that they walked away, ignored him, and said, we don't need you. We don't want to be associated with Yahweh anymore. They, they, we, who's Moses? Who cares? They didn't outright reject it. What did they do? They intermixed it. Ooh. Intermixed, right? And, and they took a little bit from here and a little bit from here, and they put it in, and they formed their own way. That's what they were, we were doing. They were sprinkling in a little of the cultural stuff and sprinkling in with a little scripture, and they were taking what they liked and putting away what they didn't, adding and subtracting and substitutions. That's what they were doing. It was, a, it was syncretism with the world around them, again, creating their God in their image and in their likeness. And church, that this is the great temptation of the church today. That is it. I don't, it's not that we are suddenly going to say, you know what? I don't believe in Jesus. We're done. I don't believe it. I'm walking away. I don't want to, um, I don't want to even, uh, I don't even want to put myself into that Jesus category anymore. We're done. What we want to do instead is we want to just place our other stuff with Jesus up there. I want to mix it up a little bit. I, there are a lot of places that we could go um, with this, but I think the most powerful book in all of Scripture that deals with this temptation is actually the book of Galatians. If you remember what happens in Galatians, Paul is addressing what I'm going to call the Jesus and temptation. It was Jesus, yes, and. And what they were doing is they were taking the gospel of Jesus and they were trying to blend it and add to it and take away from it and modify it. And what, what, they, what Galatians says is, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who has called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. But listen to this, not that there is another one, but there are some of you who, who trouble you and want to what? Distort the gospel. Jesus and distortion of the gospel. Later, Paul will say, and a little leaven leavens the entire lump. Meaning, Jesus plus nothing is the gospel, and Jesus plus anything else, even good things, is a distortion of the gospel, and that distortion infects the entire lump. Infects the entire lump, and it's not the gospel. Syncretism is idolatry, because the Creator does not share His throne with creation. He does not share his throne. Jesus does not share his throne with anyone or anything else, even the good stuff. He alone is Christ. And I say this because, again, our temptation is most likely not going to be to outright deny or walk away, most likely, just like the people of Israel in the wilderness, just like the people of Israel in the book of Amos, just like the New Testament church in, in Galatians most likely our tendency is going to be to want to add and subtract and to create our own terms to syncretize and to take Jesus and sprinkle some other stuff on top. To take Jesus with this hand and to hold on to our other idols with this one. So what that means is you can come to church and hear Christ preached and sing about Christ and say yes and amen. <laughs> and then Monday comes you're now over here, saying amen over here. 
syncretism. It's syncretism. When the, when the music fades and the sermons end, we return back to our idols and we cling back to the things that share the throne. That's idolatry in church. God wants more. God wants more. I said at the beginning that my purpose, our purpose, our big purpose this morning is a search and destroy mission for the glory of God, that God would search our heart and that we would take any and every single idol that God shows us and that we would viciously kill it, that we would not wait, pause, or reason ourselves out of it, but that we would have the courage to kill it. That we would not be distracted by the idol's of our neighbors who are crazy, but that we would see ourselves and that we would have the courage to, to not make excuses for our idols, to snuggle up with our idols in the name of the Lord, but that we would, we would viciously put them to death through the power of the Spirit, for the glory of God, and to be more like Jesus. That's my prayer this morning. And I believe as we do that, and I want to end with this, we are going to have to do three things. We need three things. The first is we need the Spirit. What I mean by this is Psalm 139. Psalm 139, there's this prayer that search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. There's this call, God, would you search my heart? Because here's, here's the thing. You are not the greatest at identifying your own idols. You're not that good at it. Um, you lie to you more often than anyone else you know. And you lie more effectively than anyone else does to you. If anyone in your life lied to you as much as you lie to you, you would not be friends with them. And you know that. Scripture says the, the heart is deceitful. and Who can know it? That question, who can know it, is twofold. Number one, it's not you. You can't. Number two, who can know it? The Spirit can. Search my heart, O God, and reveal to me any ways that I cannot see. We need the Spirit in this search and destroy mission. We need Him. Second, we need each other. This one hurts a little bit because you have blind spots that you don't see or don't want to see. And often, other people around you have a better view of them. I just thought of an example, and it's horrible, but um, I got a haircut this week, <laughs> and I didn't know how bad the back of my head looked. My wife did, though. <laughs> Sometimes you're rocking a haircut, and you don't see it, and you need someone to say, brother, sister, <laughs> you need a haircut. You need a haircut. That's what community is. Now, listen, they are not perfect. They're going to miss it. They don't know your heart sometimes. I get all of that. But in God's grace and in true church community, they are often far better at seeing the idols that you are ignoring or justifying. They are far better at seeing it. Your idols are more obvious to those around you who love you and know you. We need each other. You are vulnerable when you are isolated. Mm, I would never have known the condition of the back of my head if I was alone. You are vulnerable when you are isolated. Our idol factory heart 
is unchecked in isolation. We need each other. This is why our mission is to glorify God by, yes, growing in Christ, but also growing together and going to the world. Why is that? It's because you need community to know and be known, and it takes so much time, so much energy, so much sacrifice and commitment. It takes you understanding that you are here not to just be fed and sent out, but you are here to be a part of the community. And I'm not even talking about formal church ministries. God help us if the church has to formally program you to care for each other. It takes us just opening our eyes to the people we see and being known and knowing and caring for the people around. We need the Spirit. We need each other. We're going we're gonna to fight these idols. We need the Spirit. We need each other. Ultimately, ultimately, above all, we need Christ. We need Christ. Like I said, so this was a search and destroy mission. So we've talked a lot about the search part. Search my heart, oh God. Have a neighbor who can search my heart, right? We've talked a lot about searching our heart through the spirit of God and the community. But how are we to destroy? How are we supposed to destroy? I want to uh, quote my man Tony one more time. He says, the sad The sad reality is that scripture warns us over and over that we are all idol makers. He's going to use the same Calvin language here. Seven billion polytheists, in other words, seven billion perpetual idol makers, cannot and will not stop worshiping because they cannot place, they cannot stop placing their hope and future and security in things. Listen to what he says. Sovereign grace must break our idolatrous impulses. It's by the power of God. It is through Christ that we're able to shatter the many, many idols that your heart makes on a daily basis. It is only through Christ. And this is why he goes on to say, every believer has to resist the idol factory of their heart by filling their hearts with Christ. Again, same language as John Calvin used. We resist our idols, we put them to death, we destroy them by daily and continually filling our hearts with Christ. If you were to just take and destroy all your idols here this morning, guess what? Your heart's going to make new ones for you to worship. Your heart's going to put something in that place because you're created for it. The only way that we can truly seek and destroy is to direct our worship to the one true God to fill our hearts with Christ. It's the only way. The call this morning is a a search and destroy mission to identify and viciously destroy the idols of our hearts. And so ultimately is a call to come to Jesus. It is a call to come to Christ and to fill our hearts with Christ. We need Christ. We need Christ. Whoever you are, wherever you are in your walk, come to Jesus. Search your heart through the Spirit and community together. And daily, daily clear out the factory through the power of Christ, filling your heart with Christ. Because church, I want to end with this. I can say this with full confidence. Jesus is better than any and every idol that your heart imagines. He is better.